Well, in uh, I guess it was about uh, the sophomore year of high school, my English teacher did not assign the book 1984, but a lot of English teachers did, and my understanding is still do. And uh, the book was written in the aftermath of World War II, and I, I chose this cover because this is the one that I remember my classmates carrying around for a few weeks. Uh, but many of the other covers look kind of like this, a little, a little more on the, what we might say, a little more on the creepy side with that eyeball staring at you. Uh, and so, uh, but, but that book cover uh, depicts the, the theme of the book quite well, I think, because uh, the, the book was written by a British author, and it was in the aftermath of World War II, and he was looking decades ahead into the mid-1980s as to what life might look like uh, a few decades from then in a world where there's some kind of authoritarian regime. And I'm sure some of you uh, have read the book or at least somewhat familiar with the story. And uh, the idea of Big Brother, that Big Brother watches everything you do and that the party is in absolute control. The party uh, that's in control of the nation determines uh, you know, where you work, where you go, what you do. Uh, they have absolute total control. And so in, in the story, there is a guy named, uh, named Winston. And he works at the Ministry of Truth. And his job is to rewrite history. Now think about that. Somebody's job is to rewrite history so that history is told in a way that the party, the controlling party, approves of. And so, and so it, it has to fit with Big Brother's view of the world. And Winston begins to despise what he does and this authoritarian regime that makes him do it. And so he begins rebelling against Big Brother little by little. And so the tension rises until the point where Winston's rebellion is exposed and he is sent to prison to be rehabilitated. And uh, this means they're going to break him down emotionally, they're going to break him down physically, and then turn him back into the party drone that they thought that he was. And his interrogator is a guy named O'Brien. And O'Brien uh, wants to convince Winston that any kind of resistance is just absolutely futile. And so it culminates with O'Brien uh, saying to Winston, If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. Now, is that not a bleak view of the world? If you want a glimpse of the future, Winston, imagine a boot repeatedly stomping on a human face forever. And church, it's in light of that kind of idea that the gospel screams no. It is in light of that that the gospel declares that death and disease and even evil itself does not get 
the last word. And aren't we grateful for that? Oh, on a morning that we get updates on some people that we love and care about who have had surgery or who have been in the hospital for days, knowing that there are people that would love to be with us right now, that would love to be able to sit upright in a house of worship on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. But they can't. They just physically can't be here. In a world where, you know, I was rejoiced because I finally got to send out, uh, you know, the, the message, the reminder that said, Mass are optional. Because praise God that four or five weeks ago when we had almost 300 active coronavirus cases in our community, and now we have less than 40, and they are still continuing to decline and hopefully in a couple weeks we're back down in single digits like we were some months ago. But we're reminded of death. We're reminded of disease in the situation that we now find ourselves in. And as we continue this series, The Way of Jesus, we're talking today about Jesus and the resurrection. Because there is nothing, absolutely nothing, so important in our Christian faith as the resurrection. Let's face it, without the resurrection, every one of our baptisms would be worthless. That's truth, church. Without the resurrection, our faith is built on nothing. But... We have blessed assurance this morning, don't we? That our faith is not built on nothing. Our faith is built on the truth of the resurrection. And so I invite you to join me in Luke chapter 4, chapter 24, excuse me. In Luke chapter 24, and I debated... Which gospel account I would use, all four of them give a detailed account of the resurrection. But after looking at all of them, I decided to go with Luke's. And so we begin in Luke 24 and verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. (coughs) Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. 
But they did not believe the woman because the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Church, I'm going to read verse 11 one more time. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, church family, you put yourself in the position of those women. And I know this feels like like a message we might typically hear on Resurrection Sunday when we celebrate in the spring on Easter. But I can't do a multi-week series about the way of Jesus without discussing the resurrection. And so imagine, if you will, that you are with those women and you are heading to the tomb that morning. You've got the spices and everything that's prepared to attend to the body of Jesus. And as you approach, his thoughts are going through your head. You know, what's it going to look like? I'm not sure if they had considered how they would get the stone rolled away when they arrived at the tomb. If maybe there would be somebody there that could help them, that maybe... Maybe a guard or someone that, that could, could help them with that task. Maybe there's enough of them that they thought, hey, with us working together, we can, we can accomplish that. But I have to think that they are approaching that tomb with some sense of dread. The idea that, that they're going to care for, yes, the body of Jesus, but it is just that. It is not the Jesus that they've known for the past three years or so. It is, this is not going to be the Jesus that preached, the Jesus that went into the synagogues and had people amazed at the authority of his teaching because he didn't teach like one of their teachers of the law. The Jesus that people would come from miles around to see because he had the power to heal anything that bothered them. No, they were going to the tomb that morning to attend to the lifeless body of Jesus. And so there had to have been some sense of foreboding, some sense of dread and trepidation as they, as they approach that tomb. And then to see that the stone is already rolled away. And then they begin, I'm sure, to wonder, well, who did that? Who has already been here? Did somebody come ahead of us and attend to his body? What? is going on here? What are we going to find once we finally arrive? Because they are seeing a stone rolled away and an open doorway. And you imagine the joy that they have. At first they're, they're struck with fear 
at the sight of these men in multiple gospel accounts say their clothes were like lightning. Okay, something that's that bright. And so they just fall to their, on their faces. And then here come these voices that say, Hey, why do you look for the living among the dead? Other gospel writers have them saying, Hey, don't be afraid, he's not here. In Luke, they pose this question, Why are you here? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. Remember what he told you? Back when you were in Galilee? Remember when he said that he would have to die and rise again on the third day? And now their memories are jogged. And so fear and doom turn to absolute joy. Now, I don't know about y'all, I'm a little bit of a sports fan. And when my team wins, it makes me happy. Or maybe it's a family event. Attending my son's graduation. Graduation from high school, graduation from college, graduation from graduate school. Boy, that kid's done a lot of graduating, hadn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah. All those, all those family events, the, the birth of, of people's children, lots of reasons to celebrate, lots of reasons in life to experience joy. Whether it's the huge, momentous kind of stuff where it's human birth or where it's that more shallow kind of stuff like, hey, you know, the Titans beat the Jets or whatever it might be. But I don't think any joy that we have experienced compares to the joy that those women were experiencing when they were on their way, per the instructions, go back and tell the apostles... And so they're like, oh my, wait a second. Are you serious? We saw him die. We saw him die. And now he's alive? I mean, no one on the planet had ever experienced this. Oh, but wait. John chapter 11 that Rick read from earlier. Jesus gave them that taste, didn't he? Yeah, there's the, the widow's son at Nain and there's Jairus' daughter. And people can often argue with those kind of raisings from the dead because they could say, well, they were not really dead. They were asleep or they were... You know, they had a weak pulse or, you know, something like that. But with Lazarus, Jesus was very intentional. If you haven't read the story in a while, take some time this week and read John 11. Because Jesus gets the word that your dear friend Lazarus down in Bethany, he's not doing well. They've sent for you. And Jesus says, not right now. One of those examples, church, of God's timing. 
of God seeing the bigger picture, of God having something that he's up to. And so Jesus says, not right now, we'll go later. And then finally says, okay, it's time to go down to Bethany. And then he arrives. And he's hit with this, Master, if only you'd have been here sooner, you could have done something. And of course, if we know the story, it's hold on to your socks. Because he is going to do something. You've been sitting here wringing your hands, limiting the power of God in the flesh. Been in the tomb long enough that his own sister protests at him saying, remove the stone of Lazarus' grave. Church, what is it that she doesn't want to deal with? The smell. The smell of her brother's corpse that's been in that tomb for four days. And then Jesus says those simple words, Lazarus, come out. After he prays that prayer that says, Father, I know that they need to see this. And so Lazarus then comes out. And I love the idea of that being us prior to our baptism. That we are like someone who is walking around with the grave clothes on. Because that's all we have to look forward to. But then he gives those instructions, take the grave clothes off and let him go. In other words, let him be free. And so, there we are. Every one of us who have put on Christ in baptism, we have exchanged eternal life for those grave clothes. And church, it's all because of the resurrection. It's all because of God in the flesh who would not stay dead. God in the flesh who said, Look here, I have power over death. That the grave will not hold you if you believe in me, Jesus says. You have no reason to fear death. Death has no power, no dominion. It no longer exists for a child of God. It is simply like this that we see on the screen. It's a doorway. It's a portal. It's a passageway. That's what death is. I don't know how people deal with death when they don't have the hope of the resurrection. I don't know how they deal with it. Had a conversation with a dear sister in Christ this week and she tried to speak Jesus into someone's life who was terminally ill and the person wouldn't have it. Their belief was that when a person dies, it's like blowing out a candle. It's merely an end. And that kind of tore her up. And I just had to remind her, all I could say was, 
that everyone gets a choice. God will judge fairly. Everyone gets to make a choice. And praise God, church family, that we have heard the truth of the gospel. Praise God that we know the truth of the story. That God loved us so much that He sent us a Savior. That that Savior atoned for our sins. And then blew the mind of even the apostles who when they hear the words, He's not in the tomb. We went to take care of His body. He's not there, fellas. And there were folks present that did not look like us. And they said, He is risen. And they reminded us of what He told us back in Galilee. And at that point, Luke records the apostles thinking, Ladies, y'all are out of your mind. This is, what was that word that Luke used? Nonsense. The idea that they come bearing the joy of the resurrection and all they can say is, really ladies? Really? What? It's nonsense. But church family, here's what we do with that word nonsense this morning. Well over 1900 years later. That shows you the power and the uniqueness of the resurrection. That even those men who walked closely, those men who were designated with the name Apostle, those men who were designated now in the aftermath of the resurrection to take the good news of the gospel into the world. That these are the ones that that the, the Christian church will be built on. It will be built on their witness, their testimony. And their first reaction is, no, that's nonsense. Nobody comes back from the dead. And then I wish it was recorded. I wish we had, uh, you know, I, I, I wish we had the script of what, what was said. I wish we could peek into the dialogue in that room. And then the ladies say, well, you know, we were reminded of what he said in Galilee that on the third day, you know what? He did say that. Yeah, but has it been? Yeah, okay. And then they start unpacking it. And they say, well now, remember that time that he said he was going to die and then Peter said, don't you dare. And then he told Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then they start replaying it all in their minds. And remember the other time that he said he was going to have to die. And we, well, that didn't make us happy. And then finally, remember all that time he spent a few nights ago telling us that he was going to leave and he was going to bring somebody else. And so it takes them a while, I'm sure, to sort of process all this. Had a conversation with some of the community yesterday at a restaurant. Sat out of my table for a little bit and was telling me about something going on in their family. And she said, do you ever have to process stuff? And I said, sister, every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so I appreciate those sort of impromptu counseling sessions that I get to participate in from time to time. And so 
Yeah, she was dealing, she was telling me about having to process something. About someone she loved who was sick and praise God, she said, is now getting better. And so I know that those 11 as they were at the time had a good bit of processing to do. But the fact that those closest followers of Jesus' church family, that those 11 men who had been there to see the miracles, who had been there to see Lazarus come out of the tomb, who had been there for it all, the fact that even they had to process it should only remind us of just how important, just how unique, just how powerful the resurrection is. That they didn't just go, oh yeah, that's right, so he's risen, cool. Well then we don't have to be sad anymore. No. It took him a while. Wait. Wait, he was... He was dead. And now he's not dead anymore. And church family, for those of us who have called on the name of Jesus, that's going to be every single one of us. Wait. We were dead. Well, but not really. It was just a passageway. It was just a portal. There's an old preacher story that I know I've told before, probably on an Easter Sunday in the last couple of years, but about that Sunday school class. And the teacher is looking for an object lesson. He's wanting to to teach the children in that Sunday school class about new life. And so he takes some of those leftover plastic eggs... And he, he, he comes on Easter Sunday and he hands them out. And he says, okay, for next week, I want you to bring back, I want you to bring back an egg with something in it that represents new life. And so, next week, here come the eggs back. And... There is one by one, he opens it, and one has a butterfly in it, and one has a flower in it. And there's that one little boy who's kind of, you know, he's kind of cantankerous, and he put a rock in his, and everybody laughed and said, hey, what does the rock mean? He says, well, I knew you all would bring flowers and butterflies, so I brought a rock, brought a rock, so there it is, you know. And, and so, and there's that, finally, that one little boy And the story that I read, his name is Philip. And Philip has trouble fitting in with the class. Philip has Down syndrome and the teacher has made a special effort to include Philip and make him feel as much part of the group as he ever could. And and so they get to Philip's egg and they open it and it's empty. And then... The other kids say, Philip, you didn't do it right. Come on, Philip, it's not supposed to be empty. And then Philip says, but I did do it right. Because the tomb was empty. 
to Philip, that emptiness represented new life. And so for us church today, the empty tomb represents new life. Whenever we gather around this table, whenever we commune together, when we observe the Lord's Supper and take those emblems, we should be reminded of new life. We should be reminded of eternal life. As we close this morning, some scriptures I want to share with you from 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to God and Father, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And from 1 Corinthians 6, 14, By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. And then finally, a continuation of what Rick read for us this morning. From John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, her being Mary, of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? And what was her response, church? Yes, I believe. And she said, I believe that you are the Christ which is the Greek version of the word Messiah. In other words, yes, I believe that you are the Son of God. And church, I praise God that it's not any more complicated than that. That all the things that can be done in life that require complicated exams and passing oral reviews and all these kinds of things... That Christianity isn't like that. That all it requires us to do is to simply say, Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then we are immersed in baptism, which represents that death, burial, and resurrection. Us coming out of the water as new life. And so if you're with us this morning and you've not yet made that decision to put on Christ in baptism. We offer you that opportunity today. If you're with us this morning and you have something that you'd like a body of faithful believers to be praying about on your behalf, we offer the invitation for that reason as well as we praise God for the resurrection. Let's stand and sing together. He took my...